to John chapter 11 this morning. I hope those help you to give kind of a visual of what may have been going on during those days. I will tell you that in my study, as I deal with uh, different commentaries and things, they do an absolutely phenomenal job of staying true to the text and dealing with all the context that surrounds the passage that we'll be looking at. And as you open your Bibles, grab your outlines and your bulletins so you can follow along. And for most of you here who have been with us, we have almost uh, uh, come to the, or we are at the end of our God in 3D study. I'm going to do an extended part of that for the Easter season. And now for almost a year, we're about uh, about four weeks away from being in this book for the entire year and dealing with the topic and the theme of Jesus Christ being God. And within this passages that we've looked at, we've seen John's gospel tell us about Jesus being the very Son of God and how we are to be impacted by that. He says, these things are written that you may believe. And I hope that you, your faith and your belief in God has been strengthened from what has been shared in this uh, book of John. Now, in John chapter 11, we see uh, Jesus raising from the dead this man named Lazarus. And I want to look at the uh, pretty much the entire chapter this morning because for the last seven weeks we have been looking at the seven miracles of Jesus that John records. And we've seen Jesus be the answer to some of our greatest struggles. We've seen him as the answer to our disappointment, our desire, our despair, our doubt, our darkness, and our disability. But what I'm going to share today puts all of those in another category because Jesus in fact is our answer to the greatest need that you and I have as human beings because Jesus is the answer to our death it is no doubt in John's mind that this miracle would serve as the pinnacle of Jesus's earthly ministry to human beings and what I mean by that is secondary only to the cross this miracle would say and signify that Jesus Christ in fact is the Son of God what's a healing What's walking on water? What is changing water into wine? What is uh, multiplying loaves and fishes in comparison to Jesus taking someone who had been dead for four days and raising him from the grave? What a picture we have that we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. The, uh, his own resurrection from the grave that we will see after being in the grave for days. This is the pinnacle of all miracles that Jesus performs on another human being. And it is the basis of the Christian faith. We believe what we do. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Christian faith. It is because we believe in a Christ who said he was the Son of God, but proved it through signs and wonders, and in fact raising another human being from the grave. It is Jesus who gives dead men their life. Yet we say that in the spiritual realm, but it's true in the physical as well. We hold fast, all Christians would hold fast to the hope and the promise of the resurrection of the dead. We hold fast that one day in the clouds, Jesus will come and he will call us to go home with him if God tarries that we be alive during that time. We believe in this resurrection. We believe that the grave is not the end. Yet sadly, while this separates us from all other people, Sadly, many in this place don't allow that to resonate in their heart. They don't allow that to live out in their life. For many Christians, death strikes here within your heart. Death uh, and the afterlife looms large in your life. But this is not the position of, of the biblical writers. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I don't know about that, Paul. How are we to believe, Paul, that to die is gain? I got a call this week from my father, and he said, Tim, Uncle Bob, my great uncle on my dad's side, uh, had a massive heart attack. And he was up in Schaumburg at a hospital in the ICU department, and he says, we need to go and spend some time helping the family and praying and paying our respects and spending some time just praying over him. And I get there. And he's hooked up to all these wires and all these pumps. And there's a pump that's making him breathe. 
And as that pump would go up, you would see his chest go up, and there's no movement in his face, and he's got all kinds of tubes around him. And I saw my, my uh, cousins, and I'm sitting there watching them cry over their dad. He was 90 years old. He's 90 years old. He's still alive, but he's barely holding on. And the doctors say he'll be dead soon. And as I was standing there, I said, what is the Christian's answer to something like this? Oh, we've got our little pocket uh, Bible verses, and we've got these little uh, Christianese statements that we say, but what are we to tell people that God's answer is when it comes to our death? And I began to ask myself that question. That's a question you should ask yourself. What is the Christian's response to death? How are we at Village Bible Church to respond from a godly perspective? How are we to look to death as God does? We don't find the answers to those questions within the world system. In fact, when you bring up the subject of death within our world today, you will get sarcasm and you'll get pessimism. In fact, as I was looking to some statements that have been made about life and death, this is what I found out. Because you know what? If you don't have a good understanding of death, if you don't have hope when you die, I will tell you then your life is nothing. Because all it is is one long journey to the end of a cliff. And at some point, we don't know the hour, we don't know the day, but someday our lives will come to an end. That's a fact. Every person that has lived on this earth has died except for one who came from heaven named Jesus Christ the Son of God and he gives us our answer but the world doesn't like that answer and this is what they say a 19th century British leader Benjamin Disraeli says youth is a blunder manhood a struggle old age a regret and death a curse Shakespeare once said I don't know if you know who he is uh, he was a writer very famous He said, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, which signifies nothing. A writer named George Santayana says, life is not a spectacle or a feast. Life is a predicament. Samuel Butler once said, life is one long process of getting old and tired. The French, we love the French, and you know what they say, life is an onion. One cries while peeling it. I found on the campus of Northwestern University that college students were asked to give a definition of life and then for that matter death. And these three won honorable mention. One said life is a joke that isn't even funny. Another said life is a jail sentence that we get for committing the crime of being born. And the one that would get first prize that sums up the world's view on life and death came from a freshman girl who said life is a disease for which the only cure is death. You're going to tell me that our world has hope in their life? I will tell you John chapter 11 gives us the only answer, not only to our death, but to our life as well. So let's look at what it says this morning. As we've seen it with our eyes, Let us look to this marvelous chapter and learn how Jesus responds to the greatest enemy that you and I will ever face. There's three things that I want to pull from this passage. First of all, that our answer to death, our answer to death is found in the passion of Christ. It's found in the passion of Christ. Now when I use this word passion, I need to give a clarification. I want to be careful that we don't just use words because the first letter starts at a letter that I want to use. I like this word. I had Ray look it up in the dictionary. I'm not sure how to use a dictionary up to the So I have Ray check up the words in the dictionary for me. And as I... I'm kidding. I don't want you to think that. And the word passion, what comes to mind, first of all, is maybe as we enter into the Easter season, we think of the passion of Jesus Christ. That week-long time of events that happen that lead up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When I use the word passion, many of you start thinking of romance. Of having the one you love near you. And just an excitement, this incredible love that overflows, we call that passion. We think of passion when we think of our hobbies or our favorite sports teams. And we say that they create passion within us. But if you look in the defi- under the definition of passion, you will see the definition that I want to use this morning. 
And this definition speaks of an ardent love or an intense emotion. And it says that it's a compelling action. I see this word passion in the text of John chapter 11. But it's not just shown to one person, but it's shown to many people during that chapter and it's shown to us as well. I want to give you three key areas that I see this passion. First of all, the first attribute of this passion is we see it present in our problems. We see it present in our problems. Look at the text this morning in John chapter 11. It tells us in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6 that a man named Lazarus is sick. I don't know about you, but any kind of sickness, no matter how little it may be, can cause an irritant, if not something worse. As Keith prayed for those illnesses in our midst, you can almost be assured that anyone who struggles with an ailment or an ailment, especially one that seems to be leading to something worse, will create trouble and turmoil within the life of the individual who's struggling. And we see that in this passage of John 11 that this problem of sickness isn't just a, a little flu bug, nor is it just the common cold, but we find out that it gets from bad to worse. Isn't that like our problems today? They start out really strong, and they just keep getting worse and worse. This is what's going on in John chapter 11, and we need to see the love, this ardent love of Jesus Christ within it. One of the questions I get as a church leader and as one who follows is from both believers and non-believers alike. And the question is, where is Jesus when turmoil and trial comes? Where is He? And I will tell you that He is present within your problems. No matter how big or how small they are. David the psalmist said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because the Good Shepherd is with Him every step of the way. I would pray for a church that would know and understand that. When the biggest trials and turmoil comes, when we find out word that our friends or our family has had their life ended in whatever way, that we would say our God is with us. Christ is beside us. But look at the statements. Even a couple different times, I, I don't have written down the verses that they were in, but twice Mary and Martha both say, if you were only here. You know, we do that so many times when problems come. We begin, and I don't know about you, but I find myself uh, many times when problems and turmoil comes, I begin to say, God, where are you? You seem distant from me. If you look at the psalmist, all throughout the psalms, anytime there's a lamenting psalm, a psalm that seems to be downtrodden, or, or the individual is finding himself in a tile, he will talk about the distance that God is from him. You are far off from me, he says in one of the Psalms. You're far off. And that's what Mary and Martha say. But we cannot forget the other scriptures that say, like in Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. Listen to what he says. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You say, well, that's for the people of Israel. That's not for us. I love the writer of Hebrews because he says the same thing to us as New Testament believers. Our God will never leave us nor forsake us. You don't need to feel abandoned. In fact, when we die, the Apostle Paul says that even in our death, we are absent from the body, but we are present with the Lord. Even when we close our eyes and our hearts stop beating, the God's answer to our death is that I will not leave you abandoned in the grave but I will take you by my angels and I will bring you to myself and forever you will be with me. What an answer to this issue of death. But look at what it says beyond that. It says that this is of a personal nature, this passion. This passion is of a personal nature. Look at verses 1 and 2. It tells us about a certain man named Lazarus and all the other uh, miracles that are done. I want you to think about this for a moment. As I was uh, contemplating this, Nowhere in any of the other personal miracles, meaning that Jesus does something for someone else, an individual, do we find out as much information about the recipient of the miracle as we do Lazarus. 
In fact, in chapter 2, we don't even know whose wedding Jesus is at. All we know, it's, a, it's in Cana. It doesn't tell us who the bride and groom are. In John chapter 4, we just hear about a nobleman, but we don't know his name. We don't know his son's name. We don't know his age. We don't know the ailment that is uh, causing such trouble in his life. In John chapter 5, we come up to a disabled man, a man paralyzed for 38 years, and we don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. We don't know his desires or his wants. We don't know if he's a disciple or not of Christ. We don't know much about him. In fact, in John 9, we come up to a blind man who's born blind, and we know he has parents, and we know that he has neighbors, but that's all we know. And yet in this one, Jesus, or John, I'm sorry, clears up a lot of the information. What does he say? He says his name. He says it's a certain man. It's a specific man named Lazarus. But not only does he tell us about him, he tells us about his family. He says he has two sisters. Two sisters, Mary and Martha. And I tell you what, these are popular ladies in the Bible. Mary and Martha are spoken about within the Scriptures. In fact, in Luke 10, 38 through 42, we see the famous passage of Jesus coming to Martha and Mary's house and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and in quiet worship and reverence as the, uh, as, uh, the Son of God teaches. But then we find Martha, of course, working and getting everything ready. And we know the context. We've heard that message preached many times about the importance of worship over service. In fact, it tells us in the text in the first part of John 11 that Mary would be the one who anointed Jesus with the costly perfume. And it's, it's kind of funny that it's found after this reference. John wrote his gospel well after many of the other gospels were written. And he puts the anointing of Jesus with the costly perfume by Mary, John chapter 12, after he talks about it in John 11. Now, why does he give all this information? It seems obvious that John is trying to paint a picture that tells us that Jesus loves this family, that he cares about this family. In fact, one of the commentators said that Martha and Mary's home was probably key places where Jesus hung out, that Jesus probably spent more time in that home than any other. He loves these people. He cares about these people. These are near and dear, not only to him, but probably the disciples. And look at what it says in verse 3. As good friends, what do they do? They send word to Jesus. Mary and Martha say, hey, Lazarus is sick. But notice what they don't do. They send word and say, the one you love is sick. But they don't say what the sickness is. Nor do they say how long the ailment has been going on. Nor do they say how bad the sickness is. All they say is, Jesus, we want you to know what's going on in our lives. Now when we hear things like that, we begin to think, well, Jesus didn't know what's going on. This is John telling us something. John is saying, okay, this is when it was articulated. The message was articulated to Jesus, but Jesus knew what was going on the entire time. We believe in the omnipotence of the Son of God, meaning He is all-knowing. He knew what was going on in the life of Lazarus. But look at what they say. They say, hey, the one you love is sick. What a, what a pattern of prayer for you and me this morning. So many times we forget that God is omnipotent. We forget that, that He's aware and He's present within our circumstances. And we say, oh, Lord Jesus, we pray uh, for Tim's foot. And, and Lord, uh, I got to tell you, it's the right foot, big toe. Dr. So-and-so will be working on it, and it's an aurora. I just want you to be aware of that. And this is what I want you to do. But look at what they say. The one you love is sick. Simple. If we would just pray and say, Lord, I'm hurting. Lord, I'm sick. Yes, we should throw our burdens upon Him because He cares for us. And we can be descriptive, but I think there's more to this part of the passage. Because it seems that they're not anti-information to Jesus. But what they're saying is we're content with whatever you do. Do you pray like that? Do you say, Lord, I'm sick and no matter what I do, I will stand firm in my trust and faith in you. Look at what it says next. Even though they're contented, it looks and it goes on in verse 3. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
Now I want to focus on this word love for a moment. If you have a Bible that you're able to uh, write in and uh, you enjoy doing that, I would circle this word love. Because the word, there are several words for love in the ancient Greek language. I'll give you three of them. First of all, there's the word eros, which means a sexual love, a love between a man and a woman in a, uh, a marriage relationship. Eros, a sexual love. Next, there's the word agape, agape love, which means a divine or supernatural love. The next word is uh, the word philia, which means human brotherly love. Anybody know what the city of brotherly love is? You're all Greek scholars. God bless you. The city of brotherly love. See, Greek does do something in our world today. And that's the kind of brotherly love or human affection. Now verse 3 uses the verb form of philia. Brotherly love or human affection. From the perspective of the sisters, they were friends of Christ. But look at what it says in verse 5. Jesus responds... Or I'm sorry, John tells us about what Jesus' response is. He says that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. The word love there isn't philia, it's agape. It's the word agape. You know, many times we feel, you know, we're close to Jesus. He's my friend. I like him like a brother. And there's a love there. Yes, it's a philia, a brotherly love or affection. But let me tell you something. Jesus loves us not with a philia, but an agape. A supernatural love, a divine love. A love that in its perfection can only come from God Himself. You know, when we say that we love God, our love, the description or the definition of love is incomplete because we can't love Him as much as He loves us. And that's the amazing thing we must remember. When these ladies go and send Jesus the message that their brother is sick and they're in this trial, they say, we love you like a brother. And that's as much as they can do. And it's admirable that they would declare their love for Christ. But Jesus declares it back. And it is far greater. Understand that Jesus you. And I don't mean He loves you as I love you or that your spouse loves you. It's not even as He loves you just as you love your children as I love little jo Noah and Joshua. But He loves us so much greater than we could ever comprehend in our minds, even in the midst of trials. That's the kind of ardent love that Jesus has for us. But look at what it says. There's some depth to this passion. He says, when he saw her weeping, in verse 33, move to the later part of the chapter, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along her also weeping, it says that, uh, that there's some great power to this, because Jesus' passion is powerful. Jesus' passion is powerful. Look at what it says. He sees her weeping. The Jews who had come along were also weeping. And he says, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. In verse 38, it says that he was deeply moved as well. What does that mean? Well, let's look at some of the Greek. In verse 33, it says, When he saw her weeping, speaking of Mary, he, uh, John uses the word kaleio, kaleio, which means loud weeping or wailing. I remember that kind of weeping and wailing. It was on September 17th, 1990. Moments after the police had told my mom that uh, my brother was killed in a car accident, I remember coming home from school and hearing the most blood-curdling screams of anguish that I never, ever want to hear again. That's kaleio in the Greek. Uncontrollable wailing. We see that many times, and it's, it's, it's almost a Middle Eastern culture. Uh, many times we'll see in the streets of Baghdad after a bomb goes off, a mother is over her child and she is wailing. And it is a terrible terrible thing to hear kaleo but it says for jesus when he saw the grief of the others it says he groaned in his spirit one in one of the passages this word is used in the new testament it means to be angered to be upset to be um, filled up with a uh, righteous anger if you will but this phrase is signifying a primarily an involuntary groan of an expression of a saddened heart. Literally what it means in the Greek text is that Jesus troubled himself. He agitated himself so that he would be able to show care. Now why would he say that? Wouldn't he just say, hey everybody, why are you crying? 
Lazarus is going to be alive in a couple moments. I've come. Everything's all under control. We don't see that. We see a sympathetic Savior. Jesus is torn by grief. Why is He torn by grief? Because He sees His friends because they're in trouble. Why? Because of the consequences of sin. And it brings sorrow into the life lives of the ones He loves. But you say, why would He do that? Why would He, why would he get so upset? I believe it's because Jesus wants to feel every pain, every sorrow. He wants you to know that He's been there and done that. One day you will stand in a beautiful garden-like setting with many tombstones all around you. And flower bouquets will be around you. And some of your dearest and closest friends and family will be there as you watch someone you love being lowered into the ground. And Jesus wants you to know, I know what you're feeling. I've been there. But not only that, because Jesus also sympathized in every way. Jesus died and went grave. And the answer for us as Christians is that we serve a Savior who has not not had everything happen to Him, but one who can deeply sympathize on our behalf. Who that when we are struggling with our last breaths, as my great uncle is right that even in his state of unconsciousness, he can know that Jesus says, I've been there. When I hung on that cross of Calvary, as I was taking my last breath, I know what I was feeling, and I am with you to the end. Jesus shows his sympathy. It says in verse 35, one of the most profound Bible verses in the text, yet it's the shortest of all. Uh, uh, two words that tell us that the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains the world by the power of His Word, that when He saw death, it says that He wept. Jesus wept. But rather than using the Greek word of loud wailing and weeping, kaleio, John uses a word that means He silently burst into tears. Dakruo. What does that mean? What does that look like? It's, in a, it's not a professional cry, nor is it a sentimental cry, but it's a spontaneous expression of love. You know, I'm not a crier. There are very few times you will see me cry unless one of my limbs has been taken away from me. I don't like it. In my opinion, it's my opinion. I don't believe it to be for everyone, but it just, it's not the macho thing to do. Guys, don't cry. And I'll tell you what, I'm wrong in that. Because I was watching a couple weeks ago in my office, I've got a TV, and I was watching a CNN report. And they were talking about the war-torn areas of Africa. And I remember seeing images, images of children and them speaking of the raping and the pillaging of people and the destroying of total ethnic groups. And something that would usually not spark any much interest in me. Why? Because I'm living in America. In America, everything's going great. I don't know those people. It just continued to come. And I remember just continuing to feel this overwhelming sense of sympathy and empathy for them. And before I knew it, I knew it. what happened was is there were tears just pouring out of my eyes. And one of my employees came in and says, what is the problem? Is business that bad? And I said, I, I am overwhelmed by what I am seeing. That's the kind of tears that Jesus was crying he says, I want you to know that I've experienced it. It's this passion that Jesus has for us. So we see something else. Not only the passion of Christ, His sympathy and His love for us, but we see the plans of Christ. The plans of Christ. It's important for us to remember that as we as human beings live this life and as we come to the end and we're dealing with this issue of death, we need to understand what it's all about. What does God have? He says He has plans for you. In Jeremiah, uh, it tells us that I have plans for you. And God does have plans for us. But what do they look like? We need to first of all understand that no matter what trials we face, no matter how many deaths we're a part of, that within any time of total despair or death, we see first of all that Christ's plans always say it with me always I didn't hear it always display the glory of God they always display the glory of God look at verse 4 when he heard this Jesus said this sickness will not end in death let's stop there for a moment so many times when we're in our time of trouble 
we're in our, our issue and our struggles. One of my uh, dad's cousins was praying over her father. And she said, just, fa- just uh, God, tell me that this is not the end for my dad. Just tell me. Give me some ray of hope that this is not the end. And my dad, who does a job of, of being a pastor, when it was his time to pray, he said, not our will, Father, but your will be done. I want to see my uncle live but you may intend that it is time for his death. Because look at what it says at the end of the verse. We get so caught up in the first one. God, just tell me how bad it's going to be and then I'll work on it. Just tell me it's not the end and I'll be fine. But look at what he says. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. I want our church to understand and know that when we're in our times of greatest struggle and as as we grow old and our times on this earth come to an end, that we will remember that even in our death we can rejoice because God is receiving glory. There are some here that are suffering from sickness and you don't understand why. And I will tell you that maybe one of the reasons why you're struggling with your illness that you are is not because God doesn't love you. It's not because you've done something terribly wrong that God says, I want to beat you up over it. It may be that you are in your sickness so that the Son of God may receive glory for what He's doing in your life. And it ain't always easy for us as Christians to understand But look at what happens next. We see that it doesn't just bring God glory, but it may also involve a delay. It may involve a delay. In verse 1, Lazarus is sick. In verse 2, we find out Jesus is made aware of it. In verse uh, 11, we're told that Lazarus is dead. In verse 17, we are told that Jesus arrives in Bethany. But when he arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now You would think that it would be that Jesus was too late that he had wasted his time, as my mom used to say, you're lallygagging. I'm not sure if that's even a word, but it worked. You're lallygagging, Jesus. Why aren't you there? Your buddy, your friend, the one you love. The one you say you love with an agape love. is very sick. And you blew it. Because now he's dead. If you don't have verse 5 within your context of thinking in John chapter 11 that Jesus loved this family, you would think that our Jesus, the one we love and serve, is a God that doesn't care. But as I thought about this, let me just read what I have here. Sometimes some things I write don't even preach like I would want them to. So let me just read what the notes say. Human love would have manifested itself by hurrying to Bethany with a heart pounding out of a chest. But divine love isn't in any hurry at all. You know, in our own humanness, we think that we've got to fix the problem right away, but just doesn't look at it that way. He says, you know what? I've got everything under control. You know, you think about it. What does an omnipotent Christ have to worry about? He's got everything under His control. Jesus knew that the delay of getting to Lazarus later after he has died would give him more glory. It would give more power. It would guide people in a way that another healing would not have the impact. So what is he doing? He's setting up a great miracle, not only for the people of that day, but for us as well. And that's pivotal for us as Christians to remember. When we are in times of trial and we go to God and we even obediently go and say, Lord, whatever your will is, Whatever your will is, would you just would you be able to answer me at some point? Answer me. And so many times we pray that way, but when we're done, we're like, where are you, Jesus? Look at the time. It's getting late. You're not answering as quickly as I want you to. And as a result of that, many times we think that God stops loving us, that He doesn't care, that He's far off, and He has better things to worry about than little old you. But let me tell you, although God's answer their answer, if you will, for this situation doesn't come quickly. In fact, Jesus loves them all the more in waiting. Have you ever looked at your trial that seems to take forever and say, you know what? God hasn't answered my prayer and it's not because He doesn't love me, because He loves me even more to make me wait. Why would we have to wait, Jesus? The answer is found because it's used to deepen our faith. It's used to deepen our faith. 
Something I learned this week as I looked at this text that I had never seen before. Because if you would have asked me before, why does Jesus wait? I would have said, go, on, go to verse 4. He does it so that he'll receive glory. But as I look at this text, I see that it's not just so that Jesus will receive glory, but that the people involved in this text will understand and know that their faith is being deepened because of what Jesus does in their life. Let's look at what it says. We see a group of different individuals whose faith is deepened. Look at the disciples in verse 16. Look at what Thomas says. Here Jesus learns about the um, issue of Lazarus being sick. And Jesus says, well, we're going to go and spend some time in Judea. And of course, that is where the chief priests and the religious leaders are. And of course, we know that by John chapter 11, these guys are out to kill Jesus. So what does Thomas say? Our buddy Thomas, the doubting man, he's called Didymus, which means simply a twin. It says to the rest of the disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. Right next to the word Thomas or to the disciples, I want to give you a couple different kinds of faith. This is a defeated faith. A defeated faith. And you know, that's what our response is this. You know, oh, uh, you know, someone comes and gives you bad news and what you say is, oh, my life is falling apart. Woe is me. Nothing goes right for us. We might as well just die. Lord, just take my life. I'll tell you what, I've been there far too many times and I would rather admit I become that way. Oh, Lord, I've served you. And, and all you do is you beat me up. There was a season in my life that I had gotten a warped view of God that I thought God was just wanting to squash me. That's what he wants to do. He's mad at Tim and he's just going to smush him down. And that's what we do so many times. I think this is what Thomas is doing. Thomas is saying, you know what? It was a good ride. Let's just go and die with him. It's over. We're going to get annihilated by the chief priest. They've been waiting for us. And now Jesus, I don't know what he's thinking, but all right, we'll go to Jerusalem and our end is near. We see a uh, defeated faith. Next, we see a wavering faith. Look at what it says in verses 21 through 27. He speaks with Martha. And Martha's great. She comes and her first word's out of her mouth. And she says, if only you were here. Things wouldn't be as bad as they are. Then she goes and she says, but I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She says, only if you were here, things would have been better. But you know what? I know you got this relationship with God. He'll give you what you ask. And then Jesus says, well, okay. Your brother will rise again. And Martha, as she hears this, she says, I know he'll rise again. He'll rise on the late day, the last day of the resurrection, of the day of resurrection. She goes back down. But Jesus is saying, hey, you're right. What you said is true. God gives me whatever I ask. And I'm saying that your brother is going to live and she's off in the last day of the resurrection thinking about, well, we'll all be raised on that day. Now much of what Martha says is admirable. But how true is it of us when trials come that our view of God goes like this? We begin to say, oh God, you're the God and you can sustain me. You are my refuge. You are my strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. And then we say, but I don't think you're near. But God, you're the one who hears and answers prayer. But then we fall back down into the depression of the issue and we say, but maybe that text is meaning only the spiritual realm and not the physical. In our heart, in our mind, it wavers. We see another kind of faith with Mary. Mary's the emotional one. Mary's the one we find crying. She runs and falls to the feet of Jesus. And in Mary, I want to call it an incomplete faith. Look at verse 32. When Mary reaches the place where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet and said, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. How many do you think would have responded that way? I know I would have. Why? Because... Mary's idea and knowledge of Jesus was that she had seen Jesus heal many people. She probably was one of a key disciple. And if she hadn't seen it with her own eyes, she had heard that, may, that he had healed the blind man. She had heard that he had healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. So where is Mary's thought of Jesus? It's right here on the healer shelf. That any time there was an ailment, that Jesus, you called Jesus, he's your man when the person... But now, we need someone who has resurrecting power. And she says, only Jesus, if you would have been here. 
It's an incomplete view of Jesus because she doesn't think in her own thinking, in her own mind, that Jesus can resurrect the dead. In fact, this is the thought of many of the disciples and many of the, uh, I'm sorry, many of the people that come to Lazarus' home to pay respects. It's 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They said, Hey, he opened the eyes of the blind. Why couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Both Mary and the crowd will now have a deeper faith after Jesus raises them from the dead. Because Jesus in raising from the dead doesn't show himself to be a healer, but the creator of life. And the only one who gives life is God. And Jesus shows them that he is God. Look at what it says in verse 45. It says, Therefore, after what takes place, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. The final one that I think faith is deepened is Lazarus. I don't know about you, and it doesn't say, and this is where I love to kind of speculate, wonder what's going on. But it's one thing, you know, you think of the man that was born, that had blindness, born blind, and he must have had an awesome testimony. You think of the dude that's uh, in John chapter 5 who's been paralyzed for 30 days. You've got to think here that when it's small group night to do testimonies, that that guy's going to bring down the house. Okay, yeah, you know what? God's done some pretty cool, neat, pretty neat things in my life. Let me tell you about them. But think about Lazarus. Lazarus is in your small group, and he says, "You know, I got to be honest with you. I had a pretty cool relationship with Jesus Christ. We we would call ourselves friends. He would know me in a crowd. And one day I got sick, and I died. And I was dead for four days, getting stinky. And what happened? Jesus raised me from the dead." Who's next? I think we just close in a word of prayer. A good small group of leaders would just say, all right, I think you got us. You got to wonder if Lazarus' life was just radically changed. You got to think that his faith was strong. You know, someone comes to your disciple of Jesus, we're going to kill any disciples of Jesus. Hey, you know what? You, I died before and he raised me from the grave last time. I figure he'll do it again. I'm not going to worry about it. You know, these pictures show us something. That many times in the delays of God, and even in our deaths, Jesus uses it to deepen the faith of many. Now many times when trials come and we wonder why the delay is happening, we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm doing whatever you ask me to do. I want to be holy. Give me the answer. And many times, please hear me, the answer to your trial does not come, not because you're not right. Not because you're not doing what God has called you to, but as bringing other people. And he's saying, you know what? You stick in that trial for a little while. I've got to deal with the disciples for a couple moments. You stay in that trial. I want to make sure that all your friends and family come from Jerusalem to pay their respects because I'm going to change their lives. Many times the trials that you face may not even be just to deepen your faith, but to deepen the community of people around you to deepen their faith. Because that's what happens in this text. Finally, we see that these uh, uh, trials are clearly declared by Christ. I don't want to spend a lot of time in this, but it's so important that we remember this. Look at what Jesus says. First of all, I want you, if you hope you have your Bible open, verse 4, look at what he says. In verse 4, then look and look at what he says in verse 11. So, verse 4, then go to verse 11. Then look at what he says in verse 23. And then look at what he says in verse 25. Do you know what Jesus declares in all four of those verses at the beginning of the trial and at the end of the trial? You know what he declares? He says, listen, I got it under control. Listen, here's my answer. Lazarus is going to live. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus believes in me, he will not die. And those that are dead will come back to life. Jesus gives the answer to them. At the beginning and all throughout, he says, I've got it under control. Listen to me. You know what we do? So many times we call ourselves Bible-believing Christians. And then when a trial comes, we throw the Bible away and say, Oh, I don't know the will of God. Oh, what does God want me to do? Oh, 
should I go left or should I go right? I don't know what to do. It's too complicated. And I will tell you this. It's in the book. The will of God is clearly defined in the Word of God that is being held in your hands. Jesus, just like in that trial, is Tess, listen to what I say. You know, none of them got it. None of them got it until that man walked out of that tomb. Jesus clearly declares what He's about to do. And He declares His plans to us in His Word. Thirdly, the power of Christ. Let's close this thing out. We're brought to the actual miracle. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And to this point, we've seen to face death, we must remember the love of Christ or the passion of Christ, the plans of Christ. But most importantly, we need to remember His power. If Christ doesn't listen to me, if Christ doesn't raise Lazarus from the dead, if Christ can't raise the dead to life, then you and I have no faith to deepen. If we don't have a God that has resurrecting power, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we should be pitied more than all people because we believe that Christ came out of that grave and He has resurrecting power. And if that isn't true, whoa, we have wasted a whole lot of time. I could have watched a whole lot of games on ESPN instead of preaching this word that means nothing. The whole foundation of the Christian faith is the empty grave. Christ has the power to resurrect the dead. Now look at what it says in verse 38 through 44. He commands, he comes to the grave, he commands it to be opened. It says he shouts with a loud voice. The Greek there literally means in a voice of a hundred multitudes is one of the uh, commentator's word studies on it. That It wasn't just one multitude of people yelling out, but it would be like a hundred multitudes. He cried out at the top of his voice, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And that's what Lazarus does. Now, many of you have heard that if, if Jesus wouldn't have put Lazarus at the beginning of that, we would have had a major party because all the graves would have opened up and the guys would have come forth. What an amazing picture of us in our salvation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, because of His amazing love for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. In fact, because of that, we are born again. And understand this, the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same power Ephesians tells us that it brought Christ from the grave is the same power that changed your heart and mind at the moment of salvation. The same resurrecting power and look at what this power brings very quickly. We see, first of all, Christ has the power to bring life. To bring life. The grave where Lazarus is at is a place of the dead. And Christ commands this man to come forth from a place of death to be with the living. You know, that's what Jesus does for sinners. He says, stop living in the grave and come hang out with those who are alive in Christ. Jesus, or uh, Paul, the, we are... Uh, an old, we are a creation, new creation in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come. What we're learning is, is that we have a new lease on life. In fact, it's not just a lease on life, but it is a brand new life in Christ. Secondly, this power brings liberty. Look at verse 43. It speaks of the grave clothes. The best way to describe this grave clothes would be that of a mummy. You've seen the Egyptians who mummified their dead. And this would have been a similar picture. And this is how they would bury. It would help to keep the body together. It would keep from the body from decomposing uh, too quickly. But it would make it very difficult to walk around. And Jesus says, man, take those things off him. Get those things off. Let him free of those things. And finally, we see Christ brings light. Brings light. Let me just give you a couple more verses. All this fit. Christ brought Lazarus from the grave, a place of darkness. But not only that, there was this veil that was put over his face. The King James says a napkin. The NIV, I believe, says a cloth around his face. And he says, take that away from his eyes so that he can see. Why do we think that? There are a couple of things. Salvation, there are three things that Jesus gives life. In John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that may have life and have it to the full. Not death, but life. If that's God, go ahead and answer it. Secondly, some of you got that. Secondly, he gives liberty. John, uh, Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but you are under grace. Jesus brings light. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that we may declare Him who's called us out of darkness 
and brought us into His wonderful light. Our answer to death is quite simple. The answer to death is that God can resurrect us from the dead. And it doesn't matter. Write this down. This miracle is possible no matter the obstacle. There was a, sto- uh, excuse me, a stone that kept Lazarus from the people. And Jesus says, get it out of the way. Let me tell you something. There is nothing that can keep you from Jesus. There's no sin. There's no trouble you've been in. There's no obstacle big enough for Jesus not to get to you when it comes to salvation. But there's one other thing. And it's that there's no odor. Write that down. I love when I have things like that. There's no odor. Verse, uh, I think it's 39. Mary brings up the issue that, uh, as the King James says, her brother stinketh. He stinks. If you're dead for four days in the Middle Eastern weather, you'd stink as well. And as I thought about that, the stink didn't keep Jesus from resurrecting Lazarus either. And you know, some of you have come and you say, Tim, you don't know what I've been involved in. I've got a pretty bad past, a pretty junky past. It stinks and Jesus can't do anything with me. Let me read this text and let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, and that's what makes our lives stink. But let's listen to this. But thanks be to God, for He has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we come before You, and we praise You for the victory. We praise You for the victory of taking dead people and making them alive in Christ. And Father, I pray for that one here today who's living in darkness, who's living within the death of their lives even now, that though they're alive, they're dead spiritually. We're told that all of us are dead in sin unless we come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we walk out of this place, that if we don't have a right relationship with You, that we would turn our lives to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, scorning its shame, enduring death, that we might have life. Lord, I pray that we as Christians would live in reality of that, so that in doing so, we might give you a greater glory and have our faith deepened each and every day. To you be the glory. To you be the honor. To you be the praise. As we leave this place now, I pray that we would leave it not looking at the death as the last chapter, as the last thing, but as the beginning of a life with You. We are told that we, in our times of grief, should not grieve as the world grieves, but that we should have hope in a great reunion that will come as Christ will part the sky and that the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive with Him shall be caught up and that we shall be with Him forever. Lord, let that become our hope. Let that become the prize that Paul says he stretches towards. That we would live a different way on this earth so that you would be given praise. We love you and thank you. And give our day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and fellowship with one another.